Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and often across the nation to help us explore American national security. So Russia invaded the sovereign nation of Ukraine in late February. The early Russian offensive was blunted by the Ukrainian staunch defense of their nation, but the Russian military has altered their strategy a bit, and the Russians are now concentrating their efforts in southern Ukraine. The Russians are making slow, steady progress, but Ukraine continues to defend their nation. As NATO nations speed lethal military support to Ukraine, the future of Ukraine's original borders hangs in the balance, as does the future of Europe. Early in the conflict, Russian President Vladimir Putin threatened Western nations if they were to interfere, possibly with the use of nuclear weapons. It is part of Russian military doctrine to train for the possibility of using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield, and most intel analysts assess this nuclear capability is is what Putin was referring to. But under what circumstances would Putin order the use of tactical nuclear weapons, and how might those weapons be used? What are the consequences of Russia detonating tactical nuclear weapons inside Ukraine? And what is the appropriate response to the use of such a weapon? How might this whole terrible situation in Ukraine play out in the end? With us today to discuss these very difficult, very challenging questions, which are directly linked to American national security interests, is Dr. Ron Krebs. Dr. Ron Krebs is professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. He's a widely published expert on international relations and international security. He is best known for his insights into national security strategy, the politics of national security, the effects of war on democracy, presidential leadership, and military and society. Ron Krebs is author of the award-winning Narrative and the Making of U.S. National Security and is co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Grand Strategy. Dr. Krebs is editor-in-chief of the leading scholarly journal Security Studies. If you're near, near a computer right now and you'd like to learn more about Professor Ron Krebs' writing and research projects, you can visit www.ronkrebs.com while you're listening to our show. Dr. Ron Krebs, welcome back to National Security This Week. It's so good to see you. Our longtime listeners might recall the conversation we had back in December with Stephen Walt discussing whether or not the United States needed a grand strategy. <laughs> Thanks so much, John. Good to, good to be back. Let's start with, uh, with your assessment of Russia's current objectives in Ukraine. We have so much to cover today. I think we, we should start here. I outlined for our listeners the fact uh, Russian forces pulled back from their effort to seize Kiev, among other cities in, in the north of Ukraine, and they're now concentrating their offensive right along the Black Sea. They're making gains slowly but surely. What, what is it Vladimir Putin and the Russian forces are trying to accomplish right now, in your opinion? So I think it's important to start with one giant caveat, John, which is that <laughs> uh, I think that we don't really know exactly what it is that the Russians are trying to achieve. We can observe changes in Russian tactics and from the and where the Russian balance of forces lie and what they're doing on the ground. And from that, we are trying to extrapolate what it is that they're aiming at. So I think it's just important for our listeners to understand that I'm not a particularly a Russia expert. I am an expert in military and national security affairs, but I think it's fair to say that the Russia experts themselves have often found themselves befuddled by what it is, and frankly, gotten it wrong often about what it is that they think that Vladimir Putin was aiming at. Back when, before this war happened, as you and I were discussing just before the show began, many a Russia expert, uh, in fact, I would say the vast majority of Russia experts did not think that when push came to shove, that Vladimir Putin would order the invasion of Ukraine. The second most popular view was, well, if he's going to do it, he's going to focus on the East. And then when, lo and behold, 
suddenly you saw Russian forces pushing in everywhere and seeming to kind of head for Kiev. Um, I think that, you know, it raised severe questions about how much anybody really understands what's going on within Russia. So with all that huge caveat, let me say, um, it seems uh, pretty clear that the Russians have pulled back from their initial objective. That is, that initial objective was likely, yes, to conquer Ukraine, but not probably to annex all of Ukraine, because that would be a pretty, uh, occupation is a nasty thing. And when you have a mobilized people, it's pretty costly to keep them under control, but rather to, I think the real objective had probably been to install a Russia-friendly puppet regime in Kiev. Um, that is something that Russia had essentially had up until 2014. Uh, and then, of course, the Russians did not have that henceforth. So it seems that the, what the Russians really now seem to be interested in is to consolidate their control in the Donbas region, in the eastern part of Ukraine, which is disproportionately composed of Russian-speaking Ukrainians, um, of those who, for whom Russian is their first language. It should be noted that the vast majority of Ukrainians speak both Ukrainian and Russian quite comfortably. The, Russia, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, moves effortlessly back and forth between the two languages. But those located, it is the Eastern zone uh, that is predominantly composed of those who speak Russian as their first language um, and the greater proportion of whom identify as Russians first and foremost. But let's say Russia does succeed as they are on the verge of doing in consolidating their control in the East. Exactly what Russia's intentions are then are unknown. Will Russia then annex those lands as it has Crimea, though that's not been acknowledged by the international community? Will they allow it to remain it as they have, they have recognized it as an independent, for the time being, as an independent state? Will that continue to be the case? Will they stop there? Will they then treat that as solidify their base and in six months, in a year, in two years, or going on, use that as a base for future operations toward their ultimately, toward their goal of establishing a puppet government in the rest of Ukraine. Exactly where Russia is headed, and therefore whether, even if we observe the end of the conflict for now, how stable is that termination of the conflict? <laughs> Those are tremendous unknowns. I know we'll come to the latter question presumably later, but Want to throw that out at the very beginning. I have lots of questions for you this morning, Ron. <laughs> so, could you comment a bit on on Russia's tactics? Uh, I mean, I think we've seen a change in what Russia was doing in the beginning compared to what they're doing now. Uh, how have you seen them change their tactics on the on the battlefield? Well, let's start a bit about what Russia tried to do at the beginning. Russian tactics at the beginning seemed to be best approximated by what we would call blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg is uh, the name in German, it means lightning war. It's what the German military sought, did very effectively uh, with, in France in World War II, which is a very swift penetration led by one's armored columns uh, designed to disrupt the adversary's command and communications. That under Blitzkrieg, what you're not seeking to do is to really gain control of a territory, but rather to penetrate it in such a way that the adversary cannot maintain an effective defense of their territory. Um, that it was the essence of German strategy at the start of World War II. It has always been, ironically, the essence of Israeli strategy vis-a-vis -vis its conventional Arab adversaries, since the Israelis do not want to fight a war on their own territory, which is quite small and shallow and vulnerable. And that's, I think, what the Russians were trying to do at the beginning. They thought that they could therefore wrap up Ukraine pretty quickly, that the Ukrainian defenses would essentially fold. And that explains some, crucially not all, but some of what went wrong for the Russians at the start. Some of the puzzles that we had, why did the Russians not do what the US military does at the beginning of every military campaign, which is establish air superiority. It explains why the Russian logistics chain was a complete and utter mess, right? We had lots of evidence, anecdotal evidence of Russian troops living off the land as if this were some kind of 18th century right. mercenary military. Um, uh, they were going and going to Ukrainian farms and basically begging for eggs and chickens. Um, this was probably a result of the fact that the Russians thought they could wrap this up really quickly. And if you wrap it up really quickly, 
You don't care if there are a few Ukrainian airplanes running around the battlefield in the air. You don't care that much that you don't have a really strong logistics chain because you don't really need one. Well, of course, we know, as we know, it didn't quite turn out that way for a variety of reasons that we can talk about. What we have now settled into is a bloody, grinding war of attrition. Um, and this is the way the Russians fight wars when, they, when Blitzkrieg does not work. <laughs> it is what the Russians did in Chechnya in the 1990s. Um, when facing an insurgency in this uh, long rebellious region in the Caucasus, the Russians simply turned the capital city of Chechnya, Grozny, into what I would, uh, would call a moonscape, right? It was simply utterly battered. And, there's and the Russians have not shown, for all of the flaws of the U.S. military, for all the ways in which the U.S. military may kill, surely in its military campaigns, more civilians than we would like, the U.S. military is not firing indiscriminately into cities. That is what the Russian military, as we know, has been doing, and has been doing it now. Uh, it has uh, done so once again in the western parts of Ukraine, right. probably in response to the NATO summit, which uh, it had not been doing for the last several weeks. But in the east, what the Russians are doing is moving slowly. It regrouped, moving slowly and methodically while causing wanton destruction. The Russians, I think, do not understand what the words Pyrrhic victory means. <laughs> that is not part of the Russian vocabulary. Now, it is partly a matter of the sort of the Russian way of war, if you will. There also seems to be some evidence that the Russians have simply run out of precision guided munitions. They've used a lot of them. They didn't have as many as the US military had. They may not have the kinds of packages that the US military puts on its dumb artillery shelves to render them precision guided. Um, and the fact is that the very first set of sanctions that were slapped on the Russians at the very beginning were designed to limit their ability to restock with uh, the most cutting edge weapons technology. So one effect of that, the West can blame itself arguably to some degree, which is if you deprive the Russians of cutting edge technology, they will turn back to the very dumb technology that they have sitting in warehouses dating with technology that dates back to the 1950s and 60s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for our listeners, uh, if you wanted to find out a little bit more about the early stages of the Russian campaign, uh, when they tried to initiate this initial, uh, or launch this offensive into Ukraine, uh, you could look to the show where I interviewed Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who's the former uh, commander of U.S. Army Forces in Europe. Uh, we had a great discussion about uh, early Russian tactics and failures of tactics, uh, failures of leadership, failures of uh, logistics, <laughs> all kinds of things. All the things that you do, that uh, uh, you don't want to do uh, wrong, uh, the Russians did wrong in the early phases of this operation, and they've they've clearly changed their tactics uh, as they've shifted everything down to the southern and eastern part of uh, of Ukraine. So, Ron, I've been. But what I just want to yeah, add, John, is there is a difference between mistakes that are made um, by design, right. because. Right, you because that is your strategy is blitzkrieg and mistakes that are made like the long-standing Russian refusal to empower non-commissioned officers right. <laughs> exactly. to exercise independence that goes back to Soviet days. Yep. That was not by design. That is, uh, it is by design, but by fear of one empowering your own NCOs. Yep. So there are things that the Russians did by design, and there are things that the Russians did not do by design, and it's important to, for your listeners to distinguish them. We, we should probably also highlight a little bit about the fact that the Russian uh, military industrial complex, their version of it, uh, clearly has been pretty rife with corruption because I think what the political leadership in Russia thought they had in the way of a military, uh, having reconstructed a, a lot of their force structure into these battalion tactical groups, uh, the equipment they had was still incredibly substandard <laughs> to what they thought they actually had when they went into the fight. So I've been trying to keep track of the challenges facing the Russian military in, in recruiting and training forces needed to kind of further invest in the, Rus in the Ukraine campaign. And I've read that Russia is now offering higher pay to entice people to put on a Russian uniform and to go fight in Ukraine. I also know the Russians have tapped into their own uh, mercenary force, uh, the Wagner Group, which has been highly active all across Africa and, and in the Middle East. Uh, they are a private military contract contractor uh, organization run 
by, if you believe the reports, Putin's personal chef. Uh, so that's a rather interesting. Uh, even Russian-speaking Ukrainians under control of the separatists in the Donbass uh, and now occupied by Russia uh, are being conscripted into the Russian military to fight against uh, Ukrainian forces. And I've, I've even heard, and maybe you've seen some of these reports too, uh, Tehran, uh, that foreign fighters from countries with dictators who pay fealty to Putin, like Syria, for instance, have reportedly contributed some fighters to the cause. H has this gambit on the part of Vladimir Putin been a, a near-term disaster for Russia, maybe even a strategic disaster for him personally? How do you see the current geopolitical perspective uh, on Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Really, really important question. Um, as you highlighted in your introduction, John, things have not gone well for the Russians. <laughs> I think that is that is clear. Um, it is worth noting at the same time that when people start dying on the battlefield, um, ask the U.S. Army how hard it was to recruit people into the U.S. Army in the dark days of Iraq. So that the fact that the Russians are paying people to put on the uniform, ask you know, members of the recruitment command of the U.S. military. They did exactly the same thing. And of course, we also, not only that, in the dark days of Iraq, the U.S. Army lowered its standards for who could get into the military. So we shouldn't think that what's been going on with regard to the Russians are that exceptional. It is somewhat exceptional in the sense that it's just, you know, four months into a military campaign, right? right? So again, it shows you how much this did not turn out the way the Russians were expecting. We could surely, and I will in a moment, sort of lay out all of the ways in which this has been costly. Um, but it's also worth noting that in a variety of ways, it isn't as great a disaster. It is a disaster, but it's not as great a disaster as it seemed at first. Okay, so how has it been a disaster? It's been a disaster, straightforwardly, very costly to the Russian economy. The Russian economy is expected to contract something on the order of 10% this year. Now, keep in mind, the global economy is expected to contract as well. <laughs> I mean, our economy will most likely find itself in recession by uh, the end of this year, by the beginning of next year. But I actually think that the costs go and the disaster goes well, well beyond the military challenges that you listed or the contraction of the Russian economy. The larger strategic costs here have been much greater. Um, if part of what Putin, what really motivated Putin was not wanting NATO on his borders and not wanting Ukraine in the West, it's been an utter disaster. Completely. Not, Europe is more unified, NATO is more unified than it has been in a generation. NATO, as we saw just beginning today and very soon, NATO will be directly, he will, uh, Russia will have a much longer border with NATO thanks to its 800-mile border with Finland. Finland and Sweden will very soon be members of the alliance. They would have been, as your listeners surely know, they would have been even sooner, if not for some of the politicking of Turkey's Erdogan. And even in the East, and this, I think, showed the limits of Russian intelligence, the war has stoked Ukrainian nationalism. Though many Ukrainians who speak Russian first and foremost are saying, wait a second, I may speak Russian, but I am a Ukrainian. Yeah. Right. And the Russians are finding even in the East, they thought they were going to have many more supporters in the East, much more intelligence, many more uh, Trojan horses throughout Ukraine than they have found themselves having. And Ukraine is now firmly in the Western camp. Yeah. So if there was any hope that uh, they were going to be able to drive a wedge between Europe and the United States, if they were going to be able to pry Ukraine off from the West. If that was the objective, it has clearly been a failure. But let me say a bit about why it's not been nearly as great a disaster as many of us thought in March. Because the Russian economy is clearly and obviously not running short of cash. Nope. The Russians have been able to sell their oil. The price of oil is through the roof. They're selling less oil. They're selling some of it at a, surely at a discount. And nevertheless, they are sitting on piles of cash. The Russians defaulted on their debt for the first time, but that was not because they didn't have cash. It's because the sanctions refused them to be able to convert those rubles into dollars. The Russians have been very clever about the ways in which they insisted that if you want Russian oil and gas and grain, well, you're going to have to pay us in rubles, right? So the Russians insisted on 
uh, payment. The United States, of course, has been trying to cut, shut off the Russian spigot of cash, right, as the Russian fuel spigot. Uh, we saw this very strange proposal. No one is quite sure how it will work, the G, where you have had an agreement amongst the G7 nations uh, to try to cut off on the, to control what's coming into Russia on the demand side. Right. That's all well and good. But the biggest purchasers of Russian oil, Russian gas, are Chinese and Indians. The idea that they're going to uh, shut off the, to pay to cap the price that they're willing to pay seems unlikely. And of course, the Russians, if they don't get enough money, could say, you know what, we're just turning off the spigot. Right. And of course, that's going to break the back of this effort immediately. I think it's also worth noting that notwithstanding the coverage we see in the American media, Russia is not especially isolated in the world economically or politically. While the West has been surprisingly unified, um, you have two major powers, China and India, that have been either openly in the Russian camp, in the case of China, or in the case of India, have been cagey um, and have refused to take any kind of efforts to limit their economic engagement with Russia. And across Asia and Africa and Latin America, you have seen very little lining up behind the West for a variety of reasons. And the big question to come is, can the West continue to maintain its unity in the face of economic headwinds? That is a huge unknown. Um, we were having inflation troubles before the war with Ukraine began. Those inflation troubles have only gotten worse. And finally, domestically. Now, I'm not an expert on Russia, as I've told your listeners, but I do follow it, of course, who cannot at this moment. Um, there were many predictions at the start that Putin's regime was going to collapse, that, uh, the, that the oligarchs, those powerful, uh, those who had made all their money on the privatization of Russian industry, that they were going to break with Putin. Now, it is worth a big caveat. Uh, autocracies often seem really stable until they don't, right? <laughs> Think about Egypt's Hosni Mubarak. Right. We thought his regime was doing pretty well until suddenly it wasn't. Um, but that, with that big caveat, there is no evidence that Putin's control over Russia is in doubt. We don't have mass protests going on across Russia. We don't have a Russian powerful Russian elites being willing to speak out, even supposedly liberal elites who had been critical of the Putin regime before the war have fallen into line. Whether out of fear, whether out of nationalism, one cannot know. But either way, it suggests that Putin's control remains quite stable. And there is nothing that Putin has done that suggests otherwise. And in fact, um, we, uh, you know, there has certainly been uh, heads have rolled within Russian intelligence and the Russian military yep. for their failures, which suggests that Putin is holding people accountable for being yes men and for misleading him and misguiding him or either willingly, consciously or out of incompetence. So none of this, I think, suggests that the regime is particularly weak at this time. Yeah, I think that's a great assessment. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Ron Krebs from the University of Minnesota, and we're discussing the situation in Ukraine. Uh, so, Ron, let's let's extend out the scenario a bit. NATO leaders are starting to frame the Russian invasion of Ukraine as something that might last for, uh, quote-unquote, a long time, years perhaps, right? You said four months is a, a relatively short time frame in a military campaign. I could not agree more. Uh, the fight for the Donbass between uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, Russian proxies specifically, has already lasted eight years, but that fight was not anywhere on the scale of what we're seeing right now. Uh, with this transition to operations in the south, what are Russia's end state objectives, in your opinion? Do you see anything that indicates what those objectives might be? That is, to date myself, though this is really from before my time, the $64,000 question. <laughs> okay. um, look, no one really knows, as I said. Remember that Russia experts just a few months ago generally thought that Putin wouldn't invade, or if he did invade, it was going to be simply to uh, to shore up control in the East, as we are seeing today. And a lot rides on this language of end state. My best guess, and I don't think, I think this is largely a kind of a consensus, is again, what Putin really wants ultimately is a, and, and understandably, honestly, 
is a puppet regime on his border. Um, just as the United States would not want a, uh, back in the Cold War, wouldn't have wanted a Warsaw Pact affiliated Mexico, Russia does not want a, a Ukraine in NATO or the European Union, which may not be a military alliance, but is obviously part of the West. So Russia, understandably, I think, sees that as quite threatening. Now, again, he, he doesn't want, he wants a puppet state on his Western flank. He wants a state that is in the Russian camp. And it strikes me that regardless of where we find ourselves in another four months, in six months, at the end of this calendar year, even if things have quieted down, and I think for the sake of um, Ukrainians, we certainly hope that they have. Uh, that said, I think that we should anticipate that as long as Vladimir Putin, and perhaps well beyond Vladimir Putin, remains in office in Russia, and Putin's going to be in office until his death, whenever that may be, yep, yep. <laughs> uh, we are going to continue to see efforts to destabilize Ukraine, to cultivate allied forces in Western Ukraine, uh, and to find ways and to probe for ways to destabilize Ukraine, to manipulate Ukrainian politics, and perhaps future military efforts akin to those we are seeing now. I think we should anticipate that. It won't always be at this level of intensity. And so when people talk about that going on for years, I don't think anybody anticipates this level of intensity for years. But I think what they're saying is you're going to see a variety of efforts to destabilize Ukraine, to pull it into, to try to manipulate its politics, to ensure that Russia has a friendly regime on its Western flank. Ideally, from their standpoint, much like Belarus. Right. I was just about to say, uh, you know, if, if, if with your idea of, you know, Russia wanting sort of friendly buffer states between uh, the Russian border and, and the NATO states, uh, sort of puppet regimes, Belarus comes to mind as a perfect example of that. Uh, I've seen reports that uh, that Putin is pressuring Belarusian President Lukashenko to actually enter this fight, uh, committing troops from Belarus into the conflict. Uh, we just saw reports the other day that uh, uh, Putin has offered up uh, nuclear-capable ballistic uh, m missiles uh, to Belarus, and, along with uh, fighter aircraft as well. And who who knows what else might be in that deal? How, how likely do you think this is that you know Belarus would enter this fight uh, inter internally inside inside Belarus? There's still an, a lot of opposition to uh, Lukashenko remaining in power. Pretty sure that the the recent election was fixed. Uh, to keep uh, Lukashenko in power. So there's this rising movement of uh, democracy in Belarus uh, threatening Lukashenko's continued leadership. What what happens in, in Belarus? I mean, what do you see transpiring in Belarus? Do they, do they actually accept all these weapons? Do they get engaged in the fight in Ukraine? How, how do you see this playing out? Uh, I don't have great insight, John, into the internal politics of Belarus. But it seems clear that the future of the Lukashenko regime entirely depends on its relationship with Russia. Yep. If it were up to the <laughs> Belarusian people, he would no longer be in power. That is clear. And so from his standpoint, he is utterly dependent on Vladimir Putin. From Putin's standpoint, um, A, if the Russian military, as we know it is, is really struggling to fill the ranks, um, this is, it certainly needs more forces on the ground. It also, I think, Putin is looking for ways, just as the United States is, to safely signal in ways that will not lead to a global nuclear war, but to safely signal their intensity of their interests and their willingness to, to move up the escalatory ladder. Involving Belarusian forces on the ground would be a clear ramp up, but would be very different from the kind of nuclear scenarios you laid out at the start. Uh, and it would signal... You think this is, you're not, you don't think this is really an intense interest for us, whether it rooted in Russian identity narratives or in our sense of insecurity or in the ways in which we are, have been, uh, you know, really uh, angry for the last 30 years at the expansion of NATO, any number, in fact, and they're not mutually contradictory, they're quite complementary right. explanations. We are going to bring our own rather small, piddling, tin pot dictator allies uh, into into the battle uh, alongside us. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to go ahead and move now into uh, into this 
this really difficult set of questions uh, regarding nuclear weapons that I that I highlighted a little bit at the beginning of uh, of the show. I'm going to put a hypothetical question out there, and it's frankly a question I've been posing to all of my career uh, national security colleagues uh, off and on for the past four months. Uh, early in the conflict, Putin threatened to use nuclear weapons. Analysts have stated that Putin might feel compelled to use tactical nuclear weapons if things get really bad for Russia. Uh, for instance, maybe if uh, if uh, Western aid, NATO NATO military aid to the Ukrainians gives them enough firepower to actually turn the tide of this conflict and start pushing Russian forces back out of Ukraine, uh, that that puts uh, Putin's entire gambit on uh, on the line. Your colleague at the University of Minnesota, Mark Bell, who's also been on the show, uh, was asked uh, early in this uh, in this conflict about Putin ordering the use of nuclear weapons. Mark's Mark's response was that it was unlikely Putin would u- turn to such weapons and that he would almost certainly not use them outside of Ukraine. And frankly, I really hope he's right. (laughs) But hope, it's not a course of action, right? Hope doesn't prepare us for the worst-case scenario. So I've been giving this question a great deal of thought since February. Uh, How might Putin employ nuclear weapons uh, in the battle space? What might trigger such an order? And what is the appropriate response should Putin actually use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine? Uh, let's say he vaporizes a, a large number of Ukrainian troops in the open, or he decides to make a statement by destroying a, a small Ukrainian city. If that happens, if he uses a tactical nuke, uh, Ron Krebs, what, what should NATO do? What should the United States do? I personally haven't come up with any responses from my fellow national security professionals that that really wouldn't start the inevitable march toward full confrontation between the U.S. and our NATO allies with Russian forces. And I'm deeply curious to hear your take on this hypothetical strategic challenge. Well, I have to agree with my colleague, Mark Bell. Um, I would still say, I don't know when uh, Mark told you that uh, when he was on the show, but it still seems to me under current conditions, very unlikely. Yeah. Um, Early on, as your listeners surely know, Putin on more than one occasion alluded to the fact that Russia had significant nuclear forces. He placed their nuclear forces <laughs> on what he called special combat readiness. Nobody knew then or now quite what that means. But there have been very few illusions. Once that didn't work, right, he was trying to, prov- he was trying to at that time, to get the West to basically back away from Ukraine and let them have their way. Uh, once that didn't work, Putin basically uh, hasn't really alluded to Russia's nuclear weapons much since, right? And so I think it's still very unlikely. That said, one can envision, um, and it's hard to know, I would say, one of the reasons it's unlikely, John, is it's hard to know exactly what good that would do the Russians on the battlefield. Um, This is not a situation, I mean, the only thing, as as you say, you can imagine a kind of a Hiroshima-Nagasaki type situation, destroy a small Ukrainian city in an attempt, if you had a very, if you clearly articulated to the Ukrainians, we want you to do X, like allow us to annex, agree to the annexation of Crimea, as well as the establishment of a rump pro-Russian state in the Donbass region, right? And if you don't do that, we're going to destroy X. Uh, And then of course, use that as a, and when they don't agree, you then do X to force their hand. Again, a Hiroshima Nagasaki kind of situation. Um, And in many ways that would be in fact, parallel in a certain way to Hiroshima Nagasaki. Right. Certain ways not. Obviously, this is not a total war as far as the Russians are concerned, the way the Pacific War was for the United States. But the United States dropped the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japan's ultimate defeat was inevitable. The only question was the cost thereof. The United States didn't want to pay that cost. Right. It was thought to be extraordinarily high. And I think the Russians have now already begun to pay, like the U.S. during World War II, has paid They've paid really high costs, not World War II level costs, but really high costs for relative to the goals they were seeking to achieve. Now, that doesn't mean that Vladimir Putin won't surprise us and do something we don't expect him to do. So the question is then, what are your options? And that's what you're asking the hypothetical you've asked me, John, to think about. Now, option, I've been able to lay out basically four. Option number one, nothing, (laughs) right? Keep going with the status quo, right? which can be combined, these aren't four mutually exclusive options, that could be combined easily with option number two, surely it would be, which would be to continue to do what you're doing, but condemn the Russians, right, which surely would happen. But then there's the question of, 
Are you willing to increase support to Ukraine or decrease support to Ukraine, right, as a result? By the way, the more likely that we think it is that the Russians would escalate in this way, the more cautious that should make our policy now vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, right? If you think that the Russians, if their backs are up against the wall, might use nuclear weapons, including strategic nuclear weapons against a Ukrainian city, well, then it seems to me that you probably should be thinking very carefully about how far are you willing to go in supporting the Ukrainians. And if you're increasing support to the Ukrainians, you then have the option of placing the Ukrainians under the US nuclear umbrella or going really so far, right, a la the Cold War, of positioning nuclear weapons on Ukrainian soil to give them a nuclear deterrent. And while you're not going to give the Ukrainians nukes, they already gave up their nukes, we will recall back in the early 1990s. Yeah. Um, you know, this could be a situation more akin to Germany during the Cold War, where German pilots had nuclear weapons on their planes, the idea being that that would be a more credible signal. Because while the United States, there might be questions about whether the US would sacrifice New York for Bonn, German pilots were defending their own territory, just as Ukrainian pilots would be. I think that that is, so that's one set of questions about options with regard to Ukraine itself. The really interesting question is, what do you do about trying to reestablish a norm against the use of nuclear weapons in this context. And so um, you would want to then want to say, well, would you be able to assemble a global coalition to really isolate Russia? And the question that I would have in response to that is, do we really think that that would be more successful than now? Russia has violated the sovereignty of a sovereign member of the United Nations. And the response of major powers, as well as many small powers, has been essentially nothing. Um, it would be assuming that the use of nuclear weapons would generate so much horror and opprobrium that the world would have no choice but to come together. And moreover, you'd have to ask, well, if you, even if you were successful and you isolated Russia more, that might communicate something to others, but it might just make Putin even more transgressive. So I want to go back to my central point. We can talk about spinning out the variety of ways, right, that you should respond. But what it really seems to me is the more you think that this is a realistic scenario, right? I don't think it's particularly likely, but John Olson thinks it's very much, <laughs> very, but more likely. Well, that should make you really cautious, right? You should be asking yourself, how do we avoid this scenario? The Biden administration, uh, I think, has been very effective in bolstering Ukraine and weakening Russia. But they seem, as far as I can tell, to have given much less thought and attention to how to solve what you might call a really wicked Goldilocks problem. There you go. By a Goldilocks <laughs> problem, I mean not too hot, not too cold, just right. You want to give the Ukrainians enough weapons so that they can defend themselves and they can cause problems for the Russians, but not so many that the Ukrainians refuse to come to the bargaining table, which is what some reports say the Ukrainians are doing, that they feel have felt a few weeks ago felt so emboldened that and felt that they could maybe reconquer everything. By the same token, you want to cause enough problems for the Russians that they don't, that they sort of say, maybe we should just stop with Eastern Ukraine. But you don't want to cause so many problems for the Russians that they then feel their back, that Putin feels his back, his back is so much up against a wall that he uses nuclear weapons. At the very beginning of this, um, of this war, I was teaching a class, uh, an upper division class on international conflict and security. And what I told my class then is what I will repeat to your listeners. The only thing that scares me more than an overconfident Vladimir Putin is a desperate Vladimir Putin. Yes, <laughs> that's a great point. That is a great point. <laughs> Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Ron Krebs from the University of Minnesota, and we're discussing the situation in Ukraine. Uh, so, Dr. Ron Krebs, you just outlined a set of measures that could be pursued if Putin were to use a, a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. I, I framed it as a tactical nuke. I don't think there's any such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon. As soon as you detonate one, it has immediate serious strategic implications. But let's talk a little bit about deterrence and even nuclear deterrence. What kind of signaling 
should the U.S. and our NATO allies be using right now? You you talked a little bit about it in the in our last uh, question, but what kind of signaling should we be using right now to demonstrate to Vladimir Putin our support for Ukraine won't be undermined by Putin's threats or even his actions, even if they are nuclear in nature? Uh, what what is the right strategic approach right now? So that builds directly on the point I was making about the Goldilocks problem, yep. right? And that is, and what's challenging about managing that kind of Goldilocks problem, John, is that the way, what you mean by those signals may not be the way those <laughs> signals are interpreted. Yep. So the United States, uh, the Biden administration, I think has been trying to find that sweet spot, right? It's given the Ukrainians some of what they want, but not all of what they want. It has not giving the Ukrainians, um, it's giving them more now, but not giving them such long distance weapons that they can attack, engage in strategic attacks on Russian soil. They have been giving them not nearly as much as the Ukrainians would want. Um, they've been using economic instruments vis-a-vis -vis the Russians, but they're not, right? There are no, as I mean, there may be covert operations going on, but there are no open US military advisors any longer located on Ukrainian territory. They were pulled out immediately before the war. So the US has been trying to draw some distinctions in the kinds of weapons, how offensive versus defensive they are, if we can even draw such meaningful distinctions between weapons. I'm skeptical of that, but <laughs> the Biden administration thinks we can. They've been trying to draw distinctions um, in terms of the quantities of weaponry. Again, this is tough. Like, do you think the Russians and Ukrainians are interpreting this exactly the way you are? You say you're only giving them a moderate amount. That could be too much, too little, not, you know, it's just so hard to say. So I think that the Biden administration is kind of doing what they can. But again, it's not clear to me how much the Biden administration understands the, is sensitive to the Goldilocks problem or how much they're stuck in the early days of the war. In the early days of the war, it was just a matter of, do we think Ukraine can survive? And so you, th you get them everything you can, not these, again, trying to avoid escalatory scenarios with Russia, but you're getting them as much as you can, as quickly as you can, of lots of weaponry that'll be really useful and defensive, like anti-tank weapons. And they've been, they did a lot of that very effectively. And the Brits were um, very effective in this regard as well. Uh, but what the, it's not clear to me is that the Biden administration understands that the flip side of this is you don't give the Ukrainians a blank check. Now, the Biden administration's public rhetoric, and I don't know what's going on privately behind closed doors, the public rhetoric is Ukraine is a sovereign nation. We cannot tell the Ukrainians what to do. We cannot tell them what the negotiating posture should be. We cannot tell them when they should be negotiating. Nonsense. You know, that's giving the Ukrainians a blank check in exchange for billions upon billions of dollars of weaponry and economic assistance and political support. So nothing comes without strings attached, and it should come with strings attached. Ultimately, the United States is engaged, and the West is supporting Ukraine because it's in Western interests. And that means that there must be clear communication to the Ukrainians about where the end game is. Uh, and that means that the Biden administration needs to make some very tough choices. Have they done so behind closed doors? I can only hope so. But certainly publicly, that is not the public line put out by the administration. Certainly there's uh, discussions going on with the EU offering uh, Ukraine membership uh, in, in the European Union economic uh, construct. Uh, NATO has announced uh, a huge <laughs> increase in their uh, uh, reaction force, the ready forces uh, on, uh, on alert to 300,000. That's not an insignificant amount of cost. Uh, and and readiness requirements needed to have that many uh, personnel on standby, uh, a number of different uh, combat groups that would have to be formed and then trained together from multiple nations so that they were combat ready to respond if needed in the future. These are these are big commitments. And then Finland and Sweden now officially joining NATO. Uh, I can tell you, having spent you know two and a half years of my life in Finland working with the Finnish military, uh, they are they are prepared. <laughs> they are prepared for Russia. <laughs>
So let me let me pivot over to some other questions, uh, Ron. So I mean, one of your background is sort of the. Uh, you know, civil society and, and how do we deal with these conflict issues. The U.S. is facing pretty high inflation right now. Gas prices are high. They might be coming down a little bit. Food prices are, are way up. There's some forecasts right now that we're going to see uh, a global food crisis by late summer because of uh, what's happening in, in uh, the breadbasket of the world with Russia and Ukraine. And we have an upcoming midterm election that will determine the makeup of the U.S. Congress here in November. If there's a significant shift in power in Congress after the November elections, how do you think that change will impact the Biden administration's approach to supporting Ukraine and our NATO allies? Do you see any indications a Republican-controlled Congress would gut funding for arming Ukraine, considering our economic challenges? Or do you think the opposite will happen, that U.S. support will, for Ukraine will, will actually expand? I don't think the Biden administration has been much held back in this one instance by a divided Congress. It can't seem to get very much else done, but it can get this done. Uh, the Russians, uh, the, the Republicans, like the Democrats, both parties, have uh, wings that are less interventionist. Um, and in fact, I mean, there is, of course, the semi-isolationist wing and the quasi-isolationist wing in the Republican Party. But that's very small. Um, the Democrats, when it, because of the authoritarian nature of the Putin regime, so even many progressives have come on board with the U.S. intervention in Ukraine. So um, it is anticipated. It was anticipated before the war. Uh, it was anticipated after the war, since the war began, um, uh, that the Russia, that the Republicans would take control of the Congress. Um, that is natural, as your listeners may know. That is typically what happens in midterm elections, yeah. simply because the opposition is more mobilized and motivated. And tends to have higher levels of turnout, uh, all the more so when inflation is through the roof. And so Democrats are less motivated. Independents who voted for Biden in 2020 are now more skeptical. Um, and Republicans are very mobilized. Of course, the recent spate of Supreme Court decisions may have thrown a wrench in all those works. Nobody knows exactly how that is going to play out. Both sides seem pretty mobilized and motivated right now. And I think... Um, you know, the only thing I can say on the domestic politics front is this is not really what the Republicans were hoping for. No, <laughs> they wanted this to be an election about the economy. Instead, they're going to find it be that it will be an election about abortion. And we know from public opinion data that some 60 percent of Americans don't like the Supreme Court decision and think that basically you should have abortion uh, to some degree be legal in most cases be legal in any event. Um, the other central element is that the Republicans, if they do control Congress, as we expect them to, don't want to own Ukraine. No. So the last thing that they want to do is stand in the way. So I just don't see a shift in the Congress giving meaning. And because Republican voters are mostly supportive of the steps the U.S. has been taking vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, I don't see much change about the politics of Ukraine. Um, I would assume that you will see uh, there may not be the status quo. There may be changes, but they will be unrelated to the election, per se, or the politics, per se. Uh, so, Dr. Ron Krebs, we have just about uh, 12 minutes left in our hour. Uh, you've highlighted a, a set of very reasonable solutions that might have a good ending to this uh, to this tragedy and what, what you've discussed so far. Uh, here's a quick question for you. <laughs> I'll give you, say, five minutes maybe to sort of fill us in on, on your thoughts on this one. How do you think this crisis actually ends? Who's, who are the winners? Who are the losers? Does Putin survive and remain in power? Does Ukraine continue as a sovereign nation? I mean, how do you see this playing out from, from all the evidence that you see out there in the world today? It doesn't end, right? It doesn't. The crisis will. This moment of high-intensity warfare, which is what it is, um, and total war, as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, that will come to an end at some point. It might be in six months from now, it might be a year from now, it will come to an end at some point. But that low level conflict probing on the part of Russia, as long as Ukraine remains in the West, you are going to see Russian efforts to try to peel away portions of Ukraine, to manipulate its politics, to keep chipping away till it can achieve its goal of installing a puppet regime. So that instability, Right, which isn't surprising. Russia remains a significant regional power. Um, 
you're going to see conflict in buffer regions. That is the way of the world. Now, um, how does this crisis come to an end? Well, again, as I said, the Biden administration um, needs to be willing to do what it seems at least publicly not been willing to do, which is it has to work on the both sides of the Goldilocks problem. Right now, it's really, as far as I can tell, really only been interested in uh, trying to empower the Ukrainians. But it needs to take very seriously the concern that you have to beware of not, uh, you need to be willing to give the Russians something to bring this war to an end. Uh, Henry Kissinger, our former Secretary of State, whom everyone loves to hate, at Davos <laughs> a couple months ago, several weeks ago, um, said essentially what I'm saying, right? Or I'm saying what Henry said, right? You, you need to really work about bringing both sides to the negotiating table. This is not a war that is going to come to an end with unconditional surrender. It is not a war that's going to come to an end, it appears now, because the Ukrainians are going to push the Russians back from the east, right? We might have thought that six weeks ago. I think nobody thinks that now. And that means that the Ukrainians will probably have to swallow a very, very bitter pill, which is accepting at the very least de facto Republican, uh, Republican, excuse me, Russian control. That was, I assure you, not a Freudian slip. <laughs> de facto Russian control in the East, maybe even the formal permanent loss of territory. Um, secession for the Ukrainians, as well as for the West, should be much more palatable than Russian annexation. Uh, and I would think that that allows Putin to claim victory. And it allows, it unfortunately doesn't allow the Ukrainians to claim much of anything, except that they have retained their independence. But that is very much, I think, in the interests of the Ukrainian people, of the Russian people, and frankly, given the consequences of this war for everyone, of people everywhere. So I will I will tell you that some of the conversations I've had f with uh, some of my uh, former or retired national security colleagues, uh, we see this uh, as sort of an opportunity, uh, much like the the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, where you just keep pumping weapons in to support the Mujahideen. Uh, here we would continue to support the Ukrainians so that they bleed the Russians. Uh, the, I mean, Putin can't really just up and pull out of Ukraine based on everything that he's done. Uh, domestic policy-wise. He's committed Russia to this effort. So is there this Goldilocks uh, opportunity that you talk about? Is there a benefit to really bleeding the Russian economy, the Russian political elites, uh, forcing the people of Russia to really stand up and decide, are they going to continue to support Putin and these policies and this invasion of, of Ukraine? Uh, or is there a point at which we actually see the Russians withdraw because they've been bled for so long that they just can't continue to invest themselves in Ukraine. Do you see anything like that as a potential? So I'm, I'm talking now about a 10-year kind of a strategic process. That all depends, John, I think, on how much you fear escalation. Mm. During the Afghanistan campaign, there wasn't much concern about escalation. Nope. Right. In fact, just the opposite, um, especially in the latter years under Gorbachev, right, there was just the opposite. Um, you know, you've expressed concern about escalation. I don't think you can have it both ways. That is not showing that you want to bleed the Russians is not an attentiveness to the Goldilocks problem. It's just the opposite. It is to suggest that we should just keep escalating, but not involving American forces, but just keep bleeding the Russians. Now, it's very cynical because who's, who's at whose expense does that come? Ukraine. But <laughs> Ukrainian people. But um, and of course, Russian people. And there are many Russians who do not support the government's policies. But it also runs a risk of escalation. And I just bring you back to my earlier statement. The only thing that scares me more than an overconfident Vladimir Putin is a Vladimir Putin who is nervous for his job. When autocrats, we have lots of data that when, you know, when democratic leaders lose office because they've had a disastrous military campaign, they go and give speeches on leadership for which they get paid fifty dollars to $100,000 a pop. <laughs> yeah. When autocratic leaders are left, leave office, one of two things can happen. They might be murdered by their own people, or they might be hauled before the International Criminal Court. <laughs> I don't think Vladimir Putin finds either of those 
very appealing. Nope. nope. So it seems to me that uh, if you take the possibility of escalation seriously, then that means that bleeding Russia dry, as you are suggesting, simply increases that risk of escalation. And um, the, you have to ask yourself, is this a, uh, is this worth the squeeze, right? Is it worth running that risk for the sake of bleeding the Russians? That said, right now, right, our efforts to squeeze the Russians have not left the Russians short of cash. No. So the more, when you say bleed the Russians dry, you're talking purely militarily. Well, the Russians, as long as they've got tons of money coming in, they can replace that military materiel. And while it's true this is a total war for the Ukrainians, it's not a total war for the Russians. No. This is not going to cause sort of significant issues to the Russian population. Um, now, you know, ultimately the Afghan war led to significant domestic protest in the Soviet Union. Could that happen? Well, again, Gorbachev, who was seeking to reform the Soviet Union, who brought about glasnost and perestroika, very different figure than Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is centralizing power around himself. Putin uh, is, a, is not a figure of a status quo figure, a figure of stability, a figure seeking to redefine the security order. Right? Gorbachev tried to say, we don't have even a, he said, not only do we not have a zero sum game, not do we not, we don't have a mixed motive game. He claimed European security was a positive sum game. I don't think Vladimir Putin would ever can even conceive of such a, con a conceive of something of that sort. No, I know, and I and I love thinking about the differences between those two individuals. If you look at any one of the uh, general secretaries of the Communist Party in in the old Soviet days, uh, the heads of the of the Soviet Union, they all had sort of uh, left and right uh, limits as to what they were allowed to do because the system was built around checks and balances in the old Soviet state uh, with Putin. He has no checks and balances. I mean, literally everybody who works for him uh, is beholden to him. All of the oligarchs work for him. They don't. He doesn't work for them. So it's sort of a, an interesting between, situation there. Right. The old Soviet Union was a bureaucratic authoritarian regime. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, Putin's is a personalist yeah. authoritarian regime. Yeah. And the dynamics there are quite different. Yep. So, Ron, we just have just a couple minutes left. Uh, uh, very quickly, one final question. What haven't I asked you today that I should have asked? Any topics that we didn't cover that you think we should have discussed today? I can give you two minutes. Um, you know, we covered we covered the big ones, right? I yep. think the thing that I think the thing that we all should be spending more time thinking about is not the conditions under which what do we do if Vladimir Putin explodes a nuclear weapon, right? <laughs> we should think about how we avoid that. Yep. And the way that we avoid that is by using the remarkable leverage the United States has to try to create the political circumstances that will bring this war to an end. And then we have to think about what are the implications for the norms of territorial sovereignty? The idea that sovereign borders are inviolate is one that has brought, for all of its flaws, but it brought a lot of stability to international politics. And again, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, Winston Churchill was once reportedly asked, what do you think of democracy? And he said, it's the worst form of system <laughs> except for all the others. Yeah. Uh, I think the same thing could be true about what, how, what do you think about our way of organizing international politics, and particularly sovereign territoriality, to which my response is, it's the worst principle of international politics, except for all the others. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough, Ron. <laughs> so unfortunately, we've come to the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Ron Krebs, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an enlightening discussion. I want to ask one last question. You get one minute to answer this. The G7 came out with a $600 billion plan for global infrastructure to sort of go straight up against the, uh, the People's Republic of China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, what do you think about that? Success or, or is that absolutely crazy in a time when uh, we're see probably going to see a global recession. <laughs> how do you see this playing out? Well, I think the thing that's most striking is how small a sum that is compared to the Belt and Road Initiative. Which is about $30 <laughs> trillion. Dollars. Yeah, I know. So, I yes, know. it's really significant. And I, strong I think the real question is, part of what's gone on with the Belt and Road Initiative is that a lot of folks who've been investing with the Chinese are getting buyer's remorse. Mm -hmm. That is, the Chinese... This is not the, the Chinese are not, this is not the Marshall Plan. Right. The Chinese are not trying to inject liquidity into the international system. They're not trying to rebuild the world. 
The Chinese are in it for the Chinese. So a lot of, com a lot of countries, as they've uh, defaulted on some of their debt, are discovering all of these clauses that the Chinese built into these contracts that are super sweetheart deals for the Chinese. Um, if the West puts forward $600 billion with far fewer strings attached, with fewer sweetheart deals, seems a little less self-interested, well, then it might be quite a public relations coup, even though the amounts of money are a lot smaller. Yeah. Thank you for that. So, Professor Ron Krebs, again, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, John. It's been a pleasure. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a listener to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.